brought to you by Penguin. podcast where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty and today we're recording live at the Latitude Festival. And I'm going to be talking to brilliant comedian and author Shaparak Corsandi. Her latest book, Scatterbrain, has been described as hilarious, unflinching and wise. And it's a look back on her life through the lens of her ADHD diagnosis, allowing her to finally make sense of the chaos. Shaparak, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to be um, at Latitude and in a tent and talking books. And Shap has done her gig, so after this... Yes, yeah, so I'm relaxed now. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so I would recommend your book to absolutely everyone. People who've got ADHD, people who don't have it, people who think they might. It's so funny, it's so warm, and it's so informative Thank about you. ADHD. I just, honestly, I, and it's, it is hilarious. Thank you. Um, and also, playing Pac-Man is how I got through writing both of my books. So, yeah. <laughs> I got a Pac-Man addiction. Yeah, like 45 minutes of Pac-Man, yeah. 15 minutes of writing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you look back on your childhood, you look back on school, you look back on your relationships armed with what you now know. Yeah. And by the end, it really feels like you've made peace with some of the chaos that the undiagnosed ADHD has caused you in the past. Did you have a full sense of that piece before you started writing the book? No. It was quite cathartic, but also quite painful to revisit. There was so much of going back over certain incidences which makes so much more sense now that I understand better how my brain works and how I reacted to things and how I'd get... I thought I knew about ADHD, like the way we all did, I think, by, you know, naughty boys and forgetfulness and over-talking. I didn't know about emotional dysregulation. I didn't know about hyper-sensitivity. And I didn't know that anxiety throughout my life... I didn't know that anxiety was separate to me. Like, I didn't pay any attention to my anxiety in the way that I don't pay attention to my elbows. Yeah. I just lived with this thing. And the audiobook, weirdly, was really hard to record. I had to take a day off in the middle of it. My publishers uh, had to sort of say, can you get out of your school days now? Because the massive impact of my secondary school years... It's those times that left a really indelible sort of mark on me that I realised I had so much trauma around secondary school and not knowing that, you know, you've got ADHD and it was, yeah. So it was cathartic but also quite painful. There were really heartbreaking bits from school where you're talking about, like, masking how you felt and... I was wondering, if, does, who here thinks that they might have ADHD or they know someone who's recently diagnosed? Let's do it by way of a cheer. One, two, three. Okay, so quite a few of you. And I think it is something that's becoming more and more common. People are talking about it and learning they've got it. Are you finding that a lot of people are coming up to you going, I felt exactly the same and now I can make sense of all this stuff? Well, that, that's why I wrote the book. Because I, I sort of you know, said publicly on Twitter or something that I had ADHD. 
There was a part of me that wondered if people would go, oh, look at you, everyone's got something. But nothing, nothing like that happened. I just got an avalanche of people writing to me and relating and asking me questions. So I wrote the book and it has been incredible realizing how rife it is. And I, I, look, I'm not a doctor, I've done zero research on this, but I think it's as normal and ordinary as being left-handed or short-sighted. And if I could just point out, I saw a young person, your child, hello. And can I just say, when you put your hand up, when your child put their hand up and said that they have ADHD, hello. That makes me so happy that you know. And it makes me so happy that you've got parents who know. And, you know, you're not going to have the frustrations of people uh, of my generation and, and, and beyond who didn't know and kept trying to put square pegs into round holes and kept berating ourselves and being told, but you're so articulate and good at French. <laughs> you know? Um, so it's been beautiful but also a lot of people have been telling me stuff that really is so heartbreaking because the frustration is unreal when you don't know and also because you're so funny and you say it's really brilliant when you talk about the first therapist you saw <laughs> and you're making a joke and you're like i hope you're writing down my joke and i'm exactly the same with my therapist i'm like i'm the funniest one though aren't i <laughs> Um, do you think in a way being funny and having such a passion for humour because that really does come through I'll talk about that in a minute it's such a, a love letter to the world of stand-up which is another reason that I love this book but do you think in a way it was a hindrance to getting diagnosed because you can use being funny to sort of get through things my love of comedy and stand-up didn't come from just from you know being ADHD and not being able to navigate any other career path it came from my family and it came from you know my dad's a, a comic and, and all of that so I where humor really did come into it was how much I masked with humor so I wouldn't achieve something or I'd get something wrong or I'd mess something up and then I would use humor to mask that like as though I don't care that I got an E for my Mass GCSE and it's isn't it funny that I got an E in the retake the first one I got a D ha 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 you know but actually that's actually quite painful to get an E the second time around you know so um some people have said like aren't you worried that it'll you know hinder your it's the opposite has happened because yeah. my anxiety is not there so my love of comedy is there my anxiety is not there i don't treat every gig like an audition anymore if i don't hit the mark or if someone doesn't like what i do it's water off a duck's back because anxiety now lives in another room <laughs> to me so it doesn't hinder it at all but no doubt my need to do stand-up, my need to do a job where I think on my feet. We think on our feet. Something can happen in this audience right now and me and Izzy will not be phased, right? Something odd. Well, you know. But, you know, we can, we can roll with things. And it's no surprise that um, a huge amount of people who are self-employed have ADHD. Because yeah. we can't follow anyone. Other people's rules don't make sense to us. And it's not like we're sticking it to the man. We just, we can't Literally understand can't. what the man's saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll come. <laughs> well, 
what is the man saying? What does the man want? Um, we'll come on to comedy, because I, honestly, I loved the, the sections on stand-up. Oh, I've never you. read a better description of a death on stage and the exhilaration on stage that you get and the euphoria. The word hyperactivity, because I don't know very much about ADHD. Before this book, when I thought of hyperactivity, I thought of, I think, people running around and sort of, you know, doing extra things. But you explain that it can mean daydreaming or it can mean those more introspective activities. I found that so interesting. Yeah, I got a, a message years ago on social media from a, a girl that I went, a girl, woman, that I went to primary school with. And she'd seen me on Live at the Apollo. And she said, who'd have thought that shy, quiet little girl? Because I, I was shy and I was quiet. I'm still shy. And I was very, very quiet. But then sometimes I over-talk, like I can't stop talking. And, and that comes from a lot of the time when I'm in a social situation where there's new people and I'm excited or I'm shy and I'm, there's something, it's just my wiring fizzes and my motor, ADHD motor just goes and I can't stop talking. So then people think, oh God, she's so annoying. Or, or, or sometimes isn't she funny? Thank you. But hyperactivity can be quiet. It can be rumination. So like you walk into a party, someone that you know didn't give you a warm hello that you expected, and the whole of the next day, that just ruminates in your head. That negativity just go you, that gear, and that's so debilitating. And then. Boredom is intolerable, so you daydream. And I was locked in daydream, locked in it. Like, it, it was real life was a hindrance. I needed to be alone and in my head and in that world for so long. And yeah, it's been unreal sort of knowing that other people have the same experience because you don't tell people. No, you don't. And the role of shame comes up again and again, the theme of shame, how different shame is from embarrassment. I think you say at one point, people kind of conflate the two ideas, but shame is so different, isn't it? I think there's a deep, a deep loneliness to shame. Shame is very different to embarrassment. Shame grows and eats away at you and it's inflicted not on... It, does, it has no base in um, reality. Like if, if you, if your, I don't know, swimming costume splits as you leave a swimming pool and everyone can see your bum, well, yes, that's embarrassing, quite funny. But saying something wrong or doing something wrong or whatever, and that shame builds up and it's um, such a damaging thing not to talk about. Because we all carry it. And if you talk about it, then you, you stop feeding it. Silence feeds shame. So it's so incredible when I think of so, like just stupid things, like a police officer. When, when I was a kid, can't have been more than eight, my, my dad got caught in a bit of a car prang. And then uh, the owner of the other car told my dad to F off. And then the, the police were called and the police weren't very nice to my dad and they were being really nice to the other guy. And I said to the police officer, he told my dad to F off. And the police officer, this was like the 70s or early 80s, went, I've got a daughter your age, and if she used that word, she'd get a smack on the bum. And I just burned, right? And I know now, 
that another kid, that might have been water off a duck's back, but that burned through to my soul full of shame. And now I understand that ADHD brains can't always react appropriately to something, right? So it's like not an overreaction. It's not an overreaction to us. So that's why, like now that I know what that is, like I am so careful the way I speak to children. I mean, I've always been, but you, you know, you must never be dismissive of a child. You must never just snap, uh, you know, just say something and imagine a kid, it's going to be water off a duck's back because it's not for a lot of people and that stays with them. Like even now, like I want to find that police officer and go, I was eight. And also sometimes you don't know as the adult, they might look okay, yeah. but actually they're hiding how they feel inside. Yeah. There's something that feels so personal about shame, I think, like it's been tailored to you. And that's what makes it so hard to talk about. Or as you say, embarrassment is kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. I remember when my son pulled my skirt down on the main road and, uh, like, about four motorists sawed my knickers. That's embarrassment. Because it feels like it could happen to anyone. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, shame is a, a deep well. Um, it's so good that you're talking about all this stuff. Do you think the hyperactivity thing, the fact that it can be quiet, contemplative activities... Is that the most misunderstood aspect of ADHD? I think that is. I think that's the thing that stops a lot of people being diagnosed. So I hyper-focus. So attention deficit, that's wrong, because we've got a lot of attention. There's nothing I don't know about mountain gorillas. <laughs> nothing. So when I was a kid, I would go to the library and get out every book I could about gorillas and other apes and all other kind of animals. And I just indulge myself in learning about animals, right? And not pick up my biology book, not be able to turn that attention to that. So I have focus. Pac-Man, like my score on Pac-Man is embarrassingly high. For on stage, one of the reasons I, I love stand-up comedy, like right now, I'm a little bit nervous because I'm, I'm aware, like, I'm, I'm consciously like, not trying to stay serious, but taking this subject seriously and not cracking jokes because I, I know how to do that. But being myself and being real about a serious subject, it's quite hard. So I'm trying to focus on that. But earlier on when I was on the comedy 10, that time doing stand-up, it's hyper-focus. It's thinking on your feet. It's connecting with the moment. I'm speaking and the audience laughing, and that's the reply, and that's the connection. And that's when, like, if you... I, I drive an automatic, but I've heard that on a manual, that finding the bite, you know, when you're driving a car, when you first start to learn, that feels so good. So with stand-up, it's like, oh, I found the bite. And that's where my concentration goes into a beautifully peaceful place where every other sort of time, it can go all over the shop and I can have 10 conversations at the same time. I will forget your name, but I remember every detail you have told me about your life but I won't know what your name is and I might not recognize your face, but I'll know exactly how many kids you have, which one of them is into lizards, and all of that information I store. But I'll call you love. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, on this podcast, we ask all the authors to bring along a few objects um, that mean different things to them. Um, sometimes they don't physically bring them along, although it would have been great if you'd actually physically brought this and it would have fitted in at this festival. Um, but the first item, Shappy, is somewhere you were happy. Can I tell you something? Now, this is quite ADHD. I remember doing these and I thought they were for the Katie Piper breakfast show. <laughs> But they're for here. Brilliant. Have you done the Katie Piper breakfast Yeah, and I was really weird. Were you like, why haven't they asked me about <laughs> the toy duck from when I was two? <laughs> Somewhere where I was happy is a pear tree in a garden in Maidley Road in West London. I can tell you that because I don't live there anymore. So I used to live at... It was like this massive Victorian house that was divided into six flats and it, no one had attended to it for decades. We had to wear um, slippers in the house because it was rented, uh, rented flat and the carpets were so dirty you had to wear slippers. And you know, if windows got broken, nobody mended them. The garden was clearly once beautiful but no one had looked after it. And uh, my brother and I shared a room, so we were very, very close growing up. And we spent all our time in that garden, and it had this old pear tree that we used to climb up. Whenever our parents were rowing, <laughs> we'd run downstairs, which is why oh, I talk a lot about that as well, with my very kind permission from my parents. But my brother and I used to run up the pear tree. We'd climb up the pear tree and sit there, take snacks, and just sit there all day. And then... Um, when they sold the house and we had to move out, they did something dreadful. It had an old, um, had a bomb shelter in the garden, underground bomb shelter. They concreted it over, made it mostly a car park, but the pear tree stayed. And then um, I was going through a really, really hor horrible time in my, my divorce, and my brother went to the house, took a picture of the pear tree, and said, This is always there. Oh, oh. Yeah, and so that's where I'm happy. I think part of the crying is also perimenopause. <laughs> you know, this talk can be about whatever you want it to be. <laughs> Who's in perimenopause? Give us a cheer. <laughs> yeah, I think I am. Um, well, I don't mind. I loved it. I, I often cry during this. I think it's great. It's great to cry. It's yeah. so good. Um, did you ever eat the pears? Were they part of the snacks? No, they were great. The pears were great. Big juicy pears and it had like four apple trees. And I took, when my son was born, this is going to sound really weird and definitely trespassing, I took him to meet the pear tree. <laughs> so yeah, it's still there because I also took my daughter. Don't tell anyone. I go into people's gardens. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a little dream of buying that house back one day and restoring the garden to its former dilapidated state. Oh, I so hope that happens. Um, towards the end of... Well, actually, not towards the end of the book, because what I love about the book is it doesn't go, this is how I felt and at the end. But now I know this. Throughout it, you've got the the knowledge and the insight and the compassion to look back at things and go, that's why I think I was doing that and this is what I make of it now. So, but I guess what I mean is with the hindsight that you have now and the knowledge that you have now, you talk really beautifully about the importance of being in nature and how I suppose what you used to use to calm down the motor within you 
um, alcohol, sex, I suppose kind of living vicariously, being impulsive, you try and do things like running and being in nature and saying no to things, which is a big thing, isn't it? I was just wondering, what's your favourite place to go in nature? Would it be the pear tree, if you could pick anywhere now? <laughs> no, because that's in someone else's garden now. <laughs> um, Richmond Park in West London. I used to live near there, and I, used to, I started running there. And specifically, Roehampton Gate in Richmond Park. And so, do you know it? Um, <laughs> There used to be a hollow tree there, but they've closed, well, whatever. But I used to climb inside this big hollowed out trunk of a tree with my son. My son had a strange childhood. There's a lot of hiding in places we shouldn't be. But I just love being near big trees. And even living in London, there are some parks you can, you can lose yourself in. I go to the Isle of Wight a lot. The Isle of Wight is my happy place. Southwold is unparalleled. Yeah. It's so important. I literally hug trees. I don't care. Is it Keir Starmer that said, yeah, I hate tree huggers? Yeah. Literally hugging trees. It feels really good. And I don't care how that sounds. Yeah. Do you know what? When you wrote that in the book, I was like, that's one of those. It's a bit like when people say, I'm a bit OCD. I like my cups in order. And you go, I don't think that's OCD. Uh, yeah. that, that OCD is intrusive thoughts. It's not putting three cups in a row. <laughs> If the three cups have to be in a row to stop your family from dying, then yes, possibly. But, you know, it's not, it's not, but people sort of use that phrase a bit kind yeah. of like, and I think a tree hugging is a bit, I'm like, don't use that disparagingly. Like, that's a proper thing. You don't do that lightly. Trees you know things. really enjoy it. Trees know things. And <laughs> they whisper to me. Also, I have to say, I think this counts as nature. My dogs and my cats... And I, I think all dogs have ADHD. Cats are so neurotypical. Uh, <laughs> you, never say, you never see a cat interrupting a conversation. But dogs are um, ADHD. And my dogs absolutely eat my time, but they are vital to me, especially now that my children aren't toddlers anymore, because they demand that I stay in the moment. They demand that I get out of bed and take them for a walk. Uh, so that gives some kind of structure to my day. And the physical touch of a dog, of an animal that wants to be near you, it's so incredibly soothing. And I found all of that has been very, very healing. Walking, like I talk about exercise a lot, and people go, oh, I'm not really one for running. You don't have to be. Anything when you're shifting your body in, in any way, whatever you're able to do, to just feel that connection with yourself, to stop yourself floating off, you know, into, into a world that might be wonderful, but isn't always, you know, when you have negative ruminations and, you know, it can be really difficult. So one thing I, I, I have to say is when writing my book and talking about ADHD, so many people write to me and say, oh, I think I've got it, but oh, the waiting list is so long for a psychiatrist, but now that's, it's not just a psychiatrist that can diagnose you, a psychotherapist can. When you talked about my hindsight, that wasn't an accident. I found an incredible psychotherapist, which is a lot cheaper than a psychiatrist, and they can't dispense pills, but they can support you in understanding yourself, and there are free resources, like Attitude magazine, it's not just about the medication. Um, 
helping yourself, supporting yourself with ADHD, it, it's, it's not curable, it's not a thing to be cured. I don't think it's a disorder, it's a difference. So sometimes I worry that people think they can't go on a journey to sort of understand their minds until they get these drugs, because the drugs aren't for everybody. I don't think I would bother with the medication if my life wasn't as hectic as it was, you know. And sometimes I think the drugs just kind of make me wash the dishes, <laughs> you know, um, and not pile up in the sink. So that's my one thing I hope I make clear yes. in the book. It's not like diagnosis, drugs. Yes, you do. And actually, you talk about how it can be hard to find the right therapist as well, which I know is different from getting a diagnosis. Although I, I assume you could go and talk to someone and go, this is how I'm feeling, and they could go, this is what I think, and I can also... But you could have therapy alongside yeah. uh, trying to acquire a diagnosis from a different person. I was wondering what you think the best thing a friend can do with someone who's really experiencing any kind of turmoil from their mind, whether it's ADHD that's undiagnosed or OCD or anxiety. What do you think is the best thing a friend can do who isn't qualified, you know, to, to do anything except to be there for them? Well, um, I think understanding and crucially not joining in with them when they're being negative about themselves. Because if you have ADHD or anything that makes it hard for you to do what seems really normal and ordinary for other people, you are very likely to go, oh, I'm such an idiot, oh, I'm so sorry, oh, oh I did something really stupid. Don't go, oh, what you like, because oh, I got given that label. I remember my friends made me a card for my 21st birthday. It was so well-meaning. And it was all my phrases. Oh my God, I've lost my purse. Where's my keys? Where's my keys? Where's my purse? What, where am I meant to be? And it was the joke that I was a scatterbrain. Uh, and you know, yeah, it was a joke. Oh, trust you to do that. And even though I laugh along and I join in, actually that erodes your self-esteem. It really erodes your self-esteem and it fills you up with shame. And so just when someone's being self-deprecating in that way, obviously, if they're being hilarious and funny, do laugh. Don't join in what you like. You know what you're like. Oh, let's have three guesses. Who put the salt in the fridge? Don't do that, yeah. I'd say. I think that's really, really good advice. Okay, next item. This is... Well, item, next moment, and this is something that changed you. Here's something that changed me. I said when I, weirdly, I think I'm the only person that ever went on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here and had, like, a spiritual experience. Because <laughs> they made me jump out of a helicopter on the first day. Now, I'm petrified of heights. I can't climb a ladder. And when I say I jumped out of a helicopter, I was strapped like a baby in a papoose to a man, and he jumped out of the helicopter. So, and I, I was up above the clouds looking down on planet Earth, just going, am I actually going to die? And then you free fall for a few seconds. You just free fall. And I remembered you had to put your arms down, your head down, and I'm, I'm going head first down to planet Earth, which from that high above is just green and blue. It just looks like carpet underlay. And then I'm thinking, I'm going to die. And I thought about my cat, Oscar, came, first thing that came to my head. 
And then when you start, the parachute goes up and you whiz up and then you start floating down and then you start floating down. And then I thought, what, where is my life? Why do I work so much? Why am I always saying in a minute, in a minute to my children? Why do I always think I'm too busy to see my friends? And my friend Chloe's here with me uh, at Latitude. There's two of my friends, Chloe and Vissy, who live in South East London. And I hardly ever see them because I live in West London. And I was, why don't I see my friends more often? And I know that this is probably normal to people, but I realized that my whole, I've made my life so busy, so chaotic, that it needed me to fall out of an aeroplane to say, why don't you go for a drink with your mates? <laughs> so that's quite normal to most people, but it took that for me. Did it all happen during the fall? It all happened during the fall. And then on I'm a Celebrity itself, I was fascinated to see firsthand with my own eyes what it takes to have like reality TV star fame. And knowing that I don't have what that takes was a sweet relief because it's the sort of fame that's not for everybody. So I just sat quietly on a log until they let me go. And it made me think a lot of, and I talk about this in my book, a lot about fame. And why is it we think we want it? And actually, no, that is not what it is. And I came out and uh, I thought, I want to write a play and I want to write books. And that's, and that's what, it, what I did, because in our industry, you're sort of fed this idea that the more famous you are, the more successful you are. But what we don't as humans that haven't taken ayahuasca, which I haven't, by the way, that is the joy. When I was in there, I was like, where's the joy? There's no joy. It's all about joy. So I'm very conscious about joy. And I don't do things now that I'm not at least 90% sure of joy or a heap of money for childcare. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> um, you know how you talk about stand-up in the book? And I know the book isn't... So the book is a look back at your life through the lens of ADHD, but it's so much besides. And I love how you write about our industry. I've read lots of books supposedly about stand-up that don't write so eloquently and so lovingly about performing stand-up and about being a comic. And it's that weird thing where people often say to us as comedians, like, how do you do it? I could never do it. I could never do it. And then you say, do you say you'd never say to a boxer, how do you... <laughs> I couldn't even get in the ring. I mean, one punch and I'd be gone, you know. <laughs> Or to, you wouldn't say to a, I don't know, a heart surgeon, I could never do what you do. I'd, I'd, I'd leave a glove in their chest. Yeah, it's horses for courses. But why is it, do you think, that people, that stand-up seems to be the thing? Is it because they perceive it as a shameful thing if you don't do well? I think stand-up's a thing they say, I can't do what you do. Because number one, they think, a lot of people think that you pull it out of a hat. Yeah. They don't know that the years of graft, the years of dying, the years of learning to do it, and even when you, you think, you know, you have 20 years experience, there's still a risk of dying, right? And also I think that they, they believe that if you don't do well, it's shame game over. 
And it's, I saw, I tell you, um, I saw a very brilliant, very established comic the other day become unstuck on stage, which is my new favourite way to say die on their ass. Yes, it's a lovely way. It's, it, it's like, yeah, it's like a Victorian way of saying, she became unstuck. Yes. Yeah, it's great. It became unstuck and some neighbours of mine were in the audience and said, oh, was he really upset? No! We came backstage and we all took the pierce. It was brilliant. You know, it, it's it's uh, a hazard of the trade. It's like being a, you know, whatever, um, a, a, a tightrope walker that falls off. You know, you're not actually going to die. But people, and, and also with stand-up, sometimes, like, I'm quiet at parties, right? I, I like to sort of just, if I'm not dancing, which I do enjoy, I do like to be quiet in the corner with someone, you know, having chat. I have very funny friends that aren't stand-ups. So it's a different skill. It's a different need. Stand-ups about communication. It's come and meet me here. Like, I don't know anything about you. You could be on the opposite side of the spectrum to me politically. I don't care. But we're going to build a common ground for us all to just be in for, for a while. And that's the skill of stand-up. Wit. All of that stuff, you know, it's, it's a muscle. But that's the need to do it. Yes, to create. When a gig goes amazingly, it's almost like a religious experience, I think, isn't it? Like, it could never be any other way. It's that perfect group of people and you in that moment. And that's why I'm so addicted to, I think, chasing that feeling. Yes. And, and then you pay the price with those bad or mediocre gigs. Mediocre gigs can be more, more annoying than, than bad death. gigs. Yeah. They're worse. And the thing is that the lows have to be low for the highs to, you know, be, have that much of a payoff. And that's, that's the deal you make with the devil. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, okay, third object now. This is something you should have thrown away. Oh, yeah, right. Something that I should have thrown away or never bought in the first place is, uh, I think, that old chestnut bathroom scales. There's absolutely no need for them at all. Yeah, I agree. Uh, if you fit in your clothes, you're fine. If you don't, buy different clothes. Do you think it's tied in with the fame thing? You know, like when you were in the jungle, did you experience... Because I know you talk about the sort of tabloidy side yeah. of fame and the fact that some of those people may have been chasing that and you didn't want to... When I look at... And we're sort of around the same age. Yeah. And we sort of look at social media and stuff. I just think... I'm so glad that in the 90s, I didn't have a way of looking at my body yeah. immediately and going, oh no, why did I wear that? And yeah, yeah that, I think that, you see, I, grew up, I, I came of age in the 90s and it was the skinny fashion and I've never been skinny. And I remember, well, how sad, you know, when my career sort of got to a place where I was getting stuff on telly, I, I would literally say to people, did I look thin? Like, live at the Apollo. Uh, yeah, I didn't even watch my performance to learn and maybe structure it better. Yeah, I look fine. Oh, my God, I look so fat in there. Or, or, that's so, so sad. And now younger uh, female comedians are not like that. And I'm so thankful. And I learn from them. I learned from yeah. them. I took a picture earlier with Shazi Mirza and Cindy V. And Cindy sent it to me. And the first thing I thought was, oh, upper arms. I was like, no, stop it. Stop it. That's so toxic. So, um, yes, bathroom scales. No one needs to know how much they weigh. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. Um, there's a bit about an abusive relationship. 
<laughs> Which one? Well, <laughs> um, I think it's, is it Sam? Yeah. Which presumably is a, not, a not pseudonym. Real name. Yeah. yeah. And what I like about it is it feels really normal. So it's a pattern that I'm sure a lot of us would recognize the initial love bombing and then slow control being exerted yeah. from his side. And you say that because of your ADHD, it was confusing because initially when he told you you were incredible, it was intoxicating. And you coined the phrase adrenaline vampire, which I adore. And it says everything it needs to. In writing about these relationships, do you feel like you sort of... Is there something you'd want to say to your younger self? Like, do you feel like you were able to exert more compassion towards like situations that you might have gone, why did I end up with him? Or is actually it wasn't your fault in any way? So compassion and empathy are the key things in sort of, I think, reconciling yourself with your own past. Like I was such an idiot, I did this. But actually, that term you use, love bombing, I didn't have that vocabulary, gaslighting. I didn't understand that that was a thing. And the fact that we do is so critical. So I would go back to my younger self and say, oh, this is a strategy. And there were some people that actually did know and tried to tell me that, you know, he's trying to, you know, there's some people that like to get someone strong and like pull the rug out from under their feet. And my brain would go, no, 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 stick with him, stick with him, stick with him. Because one day he, he's going to get nicer and understanding that. And so what I do, what I can do is forgive, not, not forgive, but just love my younger self. But I have tools now to talk about these concepts with my children. My children know what gaslighting means. My children know what love bombing means because friends can love bomb you. Now, it happens to me now, like I'll meet someone and they'll worship the ground I wear. You're just amazing, you're amazing. Oh, let's, like someone, you know, come to a house for dinner, come to dinner. And I'm like, nah, no, give me space. Give me space, because that's not real. That is not real, and I'm not going to go there. Whereas before, I'd go, ah, they love me, they think I'm great. And that comes from my brilliant psychotherapist helping me to build my self-esteem and getting that rock solid and knowing my own values. Here's another, the other thing, like, when you are the sort of brain I am, I didn't know what my own values were, let alone sticking to them. And when you go against your own values, it really hurts. It really hurts. And you don't realize that that's what you're doing. You don't realize that's why you're in pain. No. Mm. Some of you might be going, uh, yeah, we do. <laughs> I'm just assuming everyone here is neurodiverse. Perhaps you're not. Perhaps you're just getting out of the rain. <laughs> Um, has anyone got a question they'd like to ask Shappy? So great, if you can shout it out, I will then repeat it into the mic. Okay, so um, person with the incredible pink hair. <laughs> it's absolutely beautiful. So she's asking, was there an event or a time or a catalyst for you realizing that you had ADHD because a conversation with a friend led you to believe that you might have it and that's led on to members of your family like siblings and probably parents now seeking diagnosis. Okay, so a very important thing in that question is that there are hereditary elements to ADHD. There is a hereditary element to it and there are also trauma. Um, symptoms of trauma can also be very similar to ADHD. I had been told by many people who knew about ADHD that I might be ADHD. A psychiatrist told me about seven years ago, and I used to have these episodes, these tantrums, 
and a boyfriend of mine said to me, you wanna, do you think that might be your brain wiring rather than you being really angry that you can't find your shoes? But I kind of ignored it. And then in lockdown, I got a box of chocolate for my children and they squabbled over how to open it properly. Next thing I knew, I had this box of dairy milk and I hurled it at the wall. And, the cho- and I've got two dogs. The chocolates went everywhere. So my two children just bombed it around trying to... And I just stood there just going, that was the moment, lockdown. They've only got me. I have to get help. This is so unfair on the kids, on the dogs. And in the past, because my kids' lives are just so full of other people, my family, my friends, and, you know, it just kind of... That's mad. They should not be witnessing that, Right. So I literally went on the British psychotherapy site and I wrote adult ADHD and I found a psychotherapist who has ADHD himself and it took that moment for me to do my homework and get something done about it rather than think my own methods will work eventually and the effect of that after a few short weeks both my children independently of each other said you never shout anymore you never snap anymore. I'd be like, oh, like snappy and shouty. And it's not, that's not me. Like 10-year-old me wasn't like that. Like it was when I went to secondary school that ADHD really came in, when that scaffolding of primary school and plasticine and colouring in is taken away and it gets real with studying. That's when all the anxiety built up and that's when all the tantrums built up. And I can't undo being a shouty mum before I forget. Makes me really upset. <laughs> no, it's fine. I I'm understand that because it's it hard. Yeah. And the worst thing is that when you're a mum, particularly when you're a single mum, people say, "Oh, but we all have stress." That what they should say is, "You need support." And my mum actually moved in with me when my son was three, because I said, "Mum, I'm just, I just, I'm just so shouty, and I hate myself for it." And so she moved in with me, and I think that it's okay to say to someone, are you shouting at your kids a lot? Okay, well, you need support. Not, oh, we all do that. Kids don't deserve that. Kids should not be around parents. They don't understand that when you're shouting at them, you still love them. They don't understand that. So that's not to say feel guilty if that's what you do I'm saying that that's what I did and I felt horrific but with the, the re, a really good supporting person-centered therapist I was able to deploy empathy towards myself and 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 talk to my children about it and make reparations with them and you know and I, I wasn't like I'm making myself sound a lot worse than I was but it's because you my say, values sorry. goes back to values yeah. my value is that you don't shout at a five-year-old. Yeah. That's my value. So that's why it hurt you so much yeah. to do it, because it was going against... But also, like you say, it's not about the shoe, it's not about the milk tray, because it's a, the kind of last straw, or really the kind of... the thing that topples you over from a, a cumulative pile of, of things that you've not been able to process. Exactly, yeah. That's also probably why it feels so shocking to you as well because you're like where's this coming from I think that's really good advice that if you because even if they're not shouting because they've got ADHD they might require some other form of of help or support so yeah absolutely and and, yeah 
yeah, just support and, and, and not be, because that shame means that a lot of parents don't want to admit that they're, they're struggling emotionally with their kid, because every parent knows how painful it is when you, you know, they're horrible to your kids sometimes, or even if it's just impatience. How can you get impatient with a two-year-old? How? But we do, and it feels horrible. Um, so we all are familiar with that feeling, and that shouldn't translate into shame. We should be able to talk about those things, and you know, and and just be supportive about those things. We've got time for one more question. Oh my gosh, we're being inundated. Um, Shappi, you pick someone. Uh, let's have a gentleman this time. Such a good question. Yeah, great question. Um, so um, this gentleman asked, with the anxiety that comes with ADHD, getting an adult diagnosis, have you had to relearn anything uh, professionally or personally um, that you were doing in a different way previously due to the anxiety? Yeah, I, so um, I love the way you phrased your question because you said the anxiety that comes with undiagnosed ADHD. Yeah. So it's not ADHD itself that can affect your mental health. It's, the, uh, it's, it's when it's undiagnosed. So that anxiety was, didn't fuel my love for stand-up, but the emotional dysregulation, the way I will avoid any sort of conflict, in, even in the most minor way, even backstage, there was a, a, this is not conflict, but there was a plate of falafels in the fridge, and I didn't know if they were for everybody, and I was just going to leave them. And I was like, no, Shappi, it's okay to say, are these for everyone? Because my residue is someone will go, well, they're not for you, and that will make me feel terrible for, like, days. And then I thought, no, 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 you can handle this. Are these for everyone? Yes, thank you. And I ate two falafels. <laughs> so that's something I've learned. And also, just that avoiding conflict meant that if someone didn't treat me very nicely or was rude to me, I would take it. I'd either take it, and for ages I thought that was because I'm a wuss and oh, look at me, I have no backbone. It's not. It's because I don't trust myself not to lose it if I do confront them. And, and so I don't trust myself to manage my own reactions to things. So unless it's my family that have to forgive me no matter what happens, I don't say when I'm upset with something the way I've been treated, I'll just be really, really compliant. And that's something that I've relearned to say, oh, I didn't like the way you talked to me. There was no need for that. And you realize people respond to direct. They respond to it. Nothing bad happens. I thought if I ever said to someone, did you just mean to, to, to say that? Because it was quite hurtful. They go, oh, I wasn't. And you can talk about it. That's like me years. Years and years. Because otherwise, I would go in all guns blazing into a situation and just like go, you don't. Or I would just go, that's fine. That's fine. Burgle my house. No problem. You know. So it's just learning to be an adult. It's hard. It is hard. Um, I'm afraid we've got to finish. I'm sorry for all the people who didn't get to ask a question. We've got to end. Um, but 
I'm sure another time Shappy will answer your questions. I know she's so brilliant. Thank um, you. I've had a really nice time. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, me too. Um, I hope you've all really hosting. enjoyed it. And I wish we had two hours and we could, you could have all have got... I know it's, it's a topic that so many people want to, to talk about and to ask about. So thank you so much. It's been brilliant to speak to you. I've, I've loved it. Thanks, Izzy. And you've I love the book, as you know. Um, Absolutely everyone has to buy it if they haven't already. Thank you for listening wherever you are, in this tent and out in the wide world. Um, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. If you can, please leave us a nice review if you're enjoying listening. It helps get the word out and it helps other people to find us. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or see who else we've spoken to, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts, plural. We have some great guests coming up in the next couple of months, so make sure you don't miss out. I'm Izzy Sutty. This is Shafrat Korsandi. See you next time.